0: Both the United Nations and a political leader of Hamas are separately working on deals to pause the fighting with Israel with no truce yet. It's Thursday, December 21st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, parsing the legal arguments over the decision by Colorado's highest court to remove former President Donald Trump from the ballot.
1: It's important to note that the 14th Amendment does not say, as it could, convicted of insurrection. It says engaged in insurrection.
0: Also, from Israel to Ukraine and beyond, the crises facing Secretary of State Antony Blinken in the new year and this hour. We hear from a Berkeley College of Music professor on the big business of Christmas music. In sports, Celtics win sunny in the 30s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live
2: from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Talks are underway for a possible pause in fighting in the Israel-Gaza War. BRS Jason DeRose reports on the negotiations.
3: Diplomats from Israel and Qatar backed by the U.S. have been meeting in Europe to work out some sort of a deal, according to U.S. officials. And Hamas says that one of its senior leaders, Ismail Haniya, was in Cairo. Egypt has been playing a role in ceasefire talks as well. Hamas is still believed to be holding more than 100 Israeli hostages. Israel wants them back. During the first ceasefire, Hamas released hostages each day in exchange for Palestinian prisoners held by Israel. Separately, the United Nations Security Council is trying to pass a resolution calling for a humanitarian pause in fighting. A vote on that continues to be delayed over language acceptable enough to avoid a U.S. veto. Jason DeRose, NPR News, Tel Aviv.
2: Texas Governor Greg Abbott says he is starting to fly undocumented migrants seeking asylum to Chicago. He says the Biden administration is to blame for failing to secure the U.S. border. Tens of thousands of people have crossed into the U.S. this month. Texas Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez says this is breaking local Texas resources.
4: Imagine something happens to you.
5: You dial 911 and you cannot go to the hospital because there are no beds, because all the beds are filled.
2: I'm not making this up. This is where we're at. Senate negotiators continue to work on federal immigration reform. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell issued a joint statement this week. They both say the negotiators are making, quote, encouraging progress. President Biden says courts will decide if former President Donald Trump should be pulled from Colorado's presidential primary ballot next year for apparently engaging in insurrection. Biden says there's, quote, no question Trump supported insurrection on January 6th. The once popular electric scooter company, Bird, has filed for bankruptcy. As NPR's Bobby Allen reports, the tech company cited scores of injury-related lawsuits as part of the reason it became insolvent.
6: Bird helped jumpstart a so-called micro-mobility movement in the 2010s by flooding sidewalks around the world with electric scooters that could be unlocked with a phone app. The company pitched scooters as an environmentally friendly alternative to cars, but it often entered cities without approval from local lawmakers. The scooters both delighted and frustrated city residents. scooters ended up in rivers and lakes, and people crashed them. Byrd says the decision to file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection was partially related to the more than 100 personal injury lawsuits it faced. But also, Byrd said it expanded too fast during the pandemic and has now ran out of cash. It will now try to reorganize its debt and emerge a leaner company. Bobby Allen, NPR News.
2: On Wall Street, in pre market trading, Dow futures are up 150 points. This is NPR.
0: I'm Rupa Shinoy. This is WBUR in Boston. Harvard President Claudine Gay will request more corrections to her work after a review found inadequate citations in her dissertation. A new report finds that some work in her 1997 Ph.D. dissertation does not have appropriate attribution. The findings were released just hours after a congressional committee announced it would look into how Harvard handled plagiarism allegations against Gay. Gay has already requested corrections to some of her other articles. Boston now has its first ever citywide tree ordinance. It includes rules that require public input before cutting down trees on city-owned land. David Meshalum is director of the group Speak for the Trees. He has questions about whether the city will enforce the ordinance.
7: What we'll have to see again is. How much is this actually changing
8: how the city of Boston, and I'm not talking about its residents, but how the city of Boston thinks about and preserves trees?
0: Environmental advocates say they'll press to expand the ordinance to include trees on private as well as public land in Boston. About 50,000 Massachusetts residents just became eligible for connector care health insurance. As Nirvani Williams reports, the low-income program just expanded some of its limits. The state advertises the new pilot
9: program as offering zero or low monthly premiums, low out-of-pocket costs, and no deductibles for individuals making 72000 yearly or a family of four bringing in $150,000. Springfield resident Brandon Orroyo has a daughter and had no health insurance before joining the new program. He says it gives him peace of mind.
8: Those bills and everything could, could add up. So this helps out with no deductibles and a couple of things that they mentioned.
9: People without health insurance, including those no longer eligible for mass health through the state's Medicaid redetermination process, can access these connector care plans during open enrollment, which is happening now. For
0: the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nirvani Williams. An incoming city councilor in Lawrence is facing voter fraud charges. The Essex County District Attorney says councilor-elect Fidelina Santiago was indicted on charges of illegal voting, conspiracy to vote illegally, and obstruction of voting. Another woman was also indicted. The charges are related to last month's local elections. There's been no comment from Santiago. New state funding aims to better prepare children for elementary school. Four organizations will split $850,000 to improve literacy in Massachusetts preschools. Education officials say the effort will lay the foundation for students to succeed in school and beyond. Recent state data reveal more than half of young elementary school students in Massachusetts showed early signs of reading difficulties. It's 706. We are funded
10: by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank, committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together, we have the power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org
0: slash givemeals. The Celtics beat the Kings 144-119 last night in Sacramento. The season next game is Saturday on the road against the L.A. Clippers. Sunny today, it'll be in the mid-30s, clear overnight with temperatures only around 20. Sunny tomorrow and back to the mid-30s, cloudy and in the 40s on Saturday. It's 31 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. It's Morning Edition
12: from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadil in Washington, D.C.
13: And I'm a. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. This week, yet another unprecedented event in the history of American democracy. And once again, it involves Donald Trump. In a Tuesday ruling, the Colorado Supreme Court voted 4-3 to remove Trump from the Republican primary ballot, citing the Constitution's 14th Amendment language, barring insurrectionists from holding public office. Now the ruling's on hold until January 4th, and that gives Donald Trump a chance to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. The thing is, election officials have said that this matter needs to be settled by the first week of January which is the deadline to submit for candidacy. Joining us now to sort through all this is David Becker. He's executive director and founder of the nonpartisan nonprofit Center for Election Innovation and Research. David, so considering three other courts around the country decided differently on similar cases, did Colorado arrive at the correct decision?
1: Well, I think that's ultimately a decision for the United States Supreme Court. We always knew it was going to end up there. and We really need the United States Supreme Court to weigh in here because as... The court itself noted they're in an uncharted territory. We've never seen a presidential candidate disqualified under the 14th Amendment, even though the 14th Amendment clause that would disqualify a candidate seeking an office of the United States who had engaged in insurrection, that has been applied as recently as last year to an elected official in New Mexico. So the United States Supreme Court is going to have to weigh in here because we actually end up having dozens of cases all over the country where... Usually Republicans are seeking to disqualify Donald Trump from the primary ballot.
13: So, David, can you explain the constitutional basis for the court's decision? Because Colorado's chief justice dissented, uh, arguing that Donald Trump has yet to be convicted of, quote, insurrection-related offense. So how does that all work? So what the
1: majority here found was basically three things. First, They held that the presidency was an office of the United States. That tends to be mostly a consensus opinion, although the lower court disagreed on that. They overturned that. Um, Second, they determined that Donald Trump had engaged in insurrection. It doesn't say convicted of insurrection in that amendment. And I think that's very important. The language of the amendment applies to engaging in insurrection and it's been applied in other cases where there hasn't been a conviction for insurrection or specifically insurrection in that new mexico new mexico case i mentioned it was applied to someone who had been convicted of trespassing in congress on january 6 not of anything more than trespassing
13: so it, and would then it be finally, fair to describe it would, it would it real quick would it be fair to describe it as even though there's no conviction i'm believing my own eyes in making this decision Well, I think it's more than that. They
1: held a five-day evidentiary hearing. Both parties were allowed to put on evidence to determine whether or not Donald Trump had engaged in insurrection. They looked at, for instance, the record of the January 6th Select Committee on January 6th. So there was evidence that they looked at. And I think there's a legitimate question as to whether or not that evidence was sufficient or not. Um, certainly the minority, some members of the minority didn't think it was, but the majority did think it was. And that's going to be something ultimately, again, for the United States Supreme Court to determine.
13: And do you think it'll hold up in the Supreme Court?
1: It's very hard to predict this. I think one thing that's for sure is we can't just assume that because six of the members were appointed by Republicans and three of the members were appointed by Democrats, that this is going to be a 6-3 decision. This almost certainly will be taken up by the Supreme Court. This is not an automatic review. This is something they have discretion over, but I think it's fairly certain it will be taken up. And then the question is, how quickly do they move? Because whether you agree that he engaged in insurrection and should be disqualified, or think he shouldn't be disqualified, one thing that everyone agrees on is we need a decision as quickly as possible and as clearly as possible. Not just for the Republican Party who needs to know if they have a qualified nominee, but for the election officials all over the country who have to plan an election and print ballots and know who's going to appear on those ballots and for the voters to know who they're going to ultimately have a choice to vote for.
13: Might the Supreme Court wait to see how this plays out in other states?
1: Um, I think this will likely be on an accelerated track. I think they need to Um, They they need to rule quickly. We already know we have a difference of opinion. The other states dismissed these cases not on the substance or the merits. They did it on procedural grounds mostly, mostly saying that this is a primary ballot. The parties have wide leeway in determining who their nominees are, and we're not going to interfere at this stage because the Republican Party hasn't selected a nominee yet.
13: And quickly, should the court factor in the will of the voters in its decision, considering that Donald Trump appears to be the GOP frontrunner?
1: Well, the courts will always defer to the voters, and it is a very high bar to get someone removed from a ballot who might otherwise appear because courts generally want to let the voters make this decision. However, if he did engage in insurrection, then the 14th
13: Amendment has to have meaning, and so the court's going to have to determine what that meaning is. David Becker is executive director and founder of the Center for Election Innovation and Research. David, thanks. Thanks.
12: France's interior minister defended a controversial new immigration bill in the French National Assembly yesterday. The French parliament recently approved the bill that many NGOs and those on the left are calling one of the most regressive immigration laws in decades.
13: The French law comes as the European Union also agreed yesterday on sweeping changes to the bloc's immigration policy.
12: NPR's Eleanor Beardsley is here to discuss all this what it means. Good morning, Eleanor. Good morning, Layla. So
14: let's start with this new immigration legislation in France. What makes it so controversial? Well, President Macron's centrist party needs support in the parliament, and the first version of the bill was rejected And so they redrafted it because they wanted the mainstream right to support it. And they made it a lot tougher. Critics now say the bill looks like the anti-immigration platform of the far right. And the law is causing a huge rift in Macron's own party. One minister resigned in opposition. There's been an uproar not only from the far left, but from people accusing Macron of mainstreaming the far right's ideas. And far right leader Marine Le Pen herself called the bill a victory. Listen to this.
11: Mais sur le principe, je crois que c'est une grande victoire idéologique
14: She says it's a great ideological victory for her party. Our goals have been achieved in this bill. You know, many people voted for Macron twice to block Marine Le Pen from becoming president. So they're incredulous that they say he is now parroting her policies. Macron, Mm. of course, rejects this. He spoke on television last night for two hours defending the bill. He says it's the shield France needs. But it's a political win for Le Pen. Some are calling it her breakout moment. So what are some of the more divisive provisions in the French law? Well, it makes it harder for legal immigrants to bring family members over. It cracks down on foreign students. And while Macron wanted to allow immigration for labor-deprived sectors, it doesn't do that. And it introduces waiting periods for immigrants who are working to be eligible for some social services like housing aid. And they say that could lead to families living on the street. I spoke with helene supios Soupios-David from migrant NGO Terre d'Asile. Here she is. France and the EU has adopted laws and regulations that are in violation of human rights and that are also putting into question the rights to asylum. What is Europe facing though when it comes to migration? Leila, for years we've seen a huge uptick in migration coming from the Middle East and all across Africa. The wave began in 2015 with the Syrian civil war, but it's continuing and increasing. And EU countries have been dealing with it in an ad hoc, uncoordinated way. Thousands of people have drowned in the Mediterranean Sea. And this is fueling popularity of far-right anti-immigrant politicians. And that's why there's such pressure on the EU as a whole to do something. So we've spoken about the French law. What about for the
12: EU? What's in their new measure? on immigration.
14: Well, it allows for faster checking of migrants at external EU borders to facilitate repatriation of those who don't qualify for asylum. The biggest element is it creates binding solidarity for the EU. Every country has to help frontline states now, like Italy and Greece, by either taking migrants or paying frontline countries to deal with them. Ulva Johansson, European Commissioner for Home Affairs, spoke about it.
15: Finally, after so many years, we have managed to agree on a common, comprehensive migration and asylum policy. It's not only a win for EU and Europe, it's a win for migrants.
14: But of course, migrants and their advocates strongly disagree. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley. Thank you, Eleanor. You're welcome, Leila.
13: Earlier this month, photographer Keely Yuyen stood in front of a newsstand. Today is a bittersweet day for me. He held several copies of the latest issue of national geographic on the cover an image of a sea snake almost glowing striped blue and black and streaming toward the ocean surface
16: my photograph is the cover of national geographics pictures of the year but unfortunately it's also the last issue of the magazine to ever be on newsstands the end of an era and the start of another
12: Next month, National Geographic will stop selling its regular printed issues on newsstands in the U.S. It caps a year of layoffs at the publication and its parent company, Disney. For Yen, who remembers growing up with stacks of the magazines in his parents' basement, it's a funny feeling.
6: Not seeing that iconic yellow border like in front of you when you're at the airport or whatever will be certainly, I think, a, a huge change for people.
13: Now, this doesn't mean the monthly magazine is over. It'll still go out to subscribers. And National Geographic says newsstands are only a small part of its circulation.
12: Still, the power of a magazine on a newsstand can be profound. In 1985, National Geographic famously published a cover known as Afghan Girl. She was one of millions of refugees at the Afghanistan-Pakistan border, with a deep red scarf and bright green eyes, she looked out from newsstands, and people could not look
3: away. This was the first time in her life she had ever been photographed.
13: That's photographer Steve McCurry, who spoke to All Things Considered in 2015 about meeting the girl in a makeshift classroom.
3: Her name was Shara Gula. She put her hands, kind of cover her face, her, her mouth, and the teacher said, no, no, you should let him photograph you because it's important for the world to know our story.
13: McCurry later reflected that Gula's image became synonymous with Afghan refugees and with Afghanistan itself.
12: Yu Yan says in a downsizing industry, a challenge for photographers is engaging people where they are.
13: We are learning
6: how to get all that journalism into that social media content and figure out how to help get people directed over to the long-form journalism that we do.
12: The latest National Geographic featuring Yu Yuyen's cover photo is available on newsstands, but next month that yellow-framed cover will be gone.
0: This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your day with 90.9 WBOMR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we get an update from a Republican strategist on the race for the GOP presidential nomination as the Iowa caucuses draw ever closer and former President Donald Trump remains far ahead of other candidates. It's
17: 7:19. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love just go to
11: WBUR.org.
18: WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city, the Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org.
19: Gathering with family during the holidays is tough to do when you have a loved one in jail. It's become even harder as many jails have switched to video visitation systems.
6: Not only are jails cutting back on in-person visits, they're now building new facilities to exclude that possibility entirely.
19: I'm Elsa Chang. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News.
5: Listen again after four today on 90.9
15: WBUR.
0: Clear skies today. We'll have highs in the mid 30s and some gusty winds. Skies stay clear tonight as temperatures fall to around 20. It'll still be pretty windy. Tomorrow, about the same as today, sunny with highs in the mid 30s. It's 31 degrees in Boston. That's Vermont singer-songwriter Noah Kahn. He captured four awards at last night's Boston Music Awards, including Artist of the Year and Song of the Year for his song Dial Drunk. Boston rapper Nay Speaks won the award for New Artist of the Year.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Heffer International, where people can donate animal gifts like goats, chickens, or sheep to struggling families to help them create sustainable futures. Learn more at heifer.org NPR. From EBSCO, offering clinical decision support resources and tools, including disease and condition content from Dynamed and drug information from Meritive. Learn more at dynamedx.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of quill Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquil.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falded
13: And I'm A. Martinez. Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom swims in the theaters this weekend with Jason Momoa back as the ruler of an underwater nation. I'm the
15: king of Atlantis. Half a billion people from every known species in the sea call this place home. But That doesn't mean they do like me.
13: This time, Aquaman is facing his nemesis, Black Manta. But the film itself had a nemesis or two on its way to the screen, a high-profile trial involving one of its stars and the changing tastes of moviegoers. And joining me to tell us all about it is someone with a very superhero-sounding name, (laughs) Mandalit del Barco, NPR's culture correspondent. Uh, Mandalit, so I I know this (laughs) Aquaman film had a lot of trouble on its way to where it is now. What happened to it?
21: Well, you know, there was so much behind-the-scenes drama flooding this movie. There were changes in the DC studio's superhero strategies, and there were rumors about production reshoots, and also fallout from the very high-profile televised defamation trial of co-star Amber Heard. And in court, Heard alleged that her ex-husband, Johnny Depp, had tried to get her booted from the role. I fought really hard to stay in the movie. They didn't want to include me in the Objection, film. Objection, Your Honor. Here's Some of this came out in Heard's therapist notes subpoenaed for the trial. She alleged that Jason Momoa came to the set drunk and that director James Wan was hostile. Of course, DC Studios denies all of this, but it's hard to tell yet whether all the bad press will affect turnout for this movie.
13: Yeah, the first Aquaman, that came out in 2018, which was a glorious year for superhero films. Black Panther came out that year, Avengers, Infinity War. So, I mean, yeah, it had a lot of good company. Um, and, and Aquaman, the first one, made $1.1 billion worldwide. Um, is is there a reason for the studio to be concerned about the, the second Aquaman film, this one?
21: Some people wonder if audiences are really tired of superhero movies. I spoke to Jeff Bach. He's a media analyst at Exhibitor Relations.
6: Now, five years later, we're talking about C-list characters and D-list characters trying to make the same noise as maybe these A-list characters. And, and that's a big change. The key here is, are audiences still on board with Jason Momoa and his Aquaman character? And will it be able to withstand what is sort of the collective comic book quagmire of
13: 2023? Ugh, Mendelite. So tell us about the <laughs> quagmire that he talks about, the comic book quagmire.
21: Yeah, well, you know, this year alone, Blue Beetle, The Marvels, Shazam 2, Ant-Man 3, The Flash. Sorry, A. Ouch. ouch um, sorry, hurts. they all had a tough time connecting with audiences. And the only superhero movies that did really well were Guardians of the Galaxy 3 and Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse.
13: Of course, Marvel movies, they seem to know what to do with these things. Now, Aquaman is going to be the final movie of the old DC universe. Uh, studio head James Gunn uh, is trying to connect, though, the end of that era with his new DC universe. And that starts with his new Superman film that's due out in 2025. What are the expectations going forward, you think, by the for for superhero films of the future?
21: Superman could re-energize the excitement again. Jeff Box says not to worry.
6: Look, these are the Shakespeare characters of our time. Like it or not, they are here to stay. This superhero genre may have taken a step downwards, but there still is nothing to take its place. Sorry, Taylor Swift. Sorry, Beyonce. You're not there yet. Superheroes still rule the box office.
21: And you know, A, there's hardly any other superhero movies on the horizon for 2024. So. Aquaman, too, really is swimming in his own lane.
13: All right. That's Manalit El Barco, NPR's culture correspondent. Manalit, thanks. Thank you. Some Christmas gifts keep giving year after year after year. Can't help wiggling my shoulders. Mariah Carey first released this song in 1994, and every year since, it's given a whole lot of comfort and joy to her bank account. Last year, All I Want for Christmas earned about $3 million in royalties. Now, I talked about the evergreen mountain of cash that holiday music can generate with George Howard. He's a professor of music business management at the Berklee College of Music.
15: So it can be the gift that keeps on giving. But one thing to understand is that there are two royalties for each song. And one is the royalty for the composer of the song. And the other is the royalty that goes to the label or the performer of the song. So someone like Mariah Carey and her massive hit... She's actually getting both royalties because she's both a writer and the performer of the song.
13: And we're talking about each time a song is streamed, every time someone does that.
15: Yeah, in theory. So the royalties are, are less precise than they, they really should be. The writer of the song, not the performer, but the writer of the song gets paid every time a song is performed on the radio.
10: Rocking around the Christmas tree at the Christmas.
15: So if you're driving in your car and the uh, Brenda Lee song, Rock Around the Christmas Tree, comes on, she didn't write that song. Uh, a guy named Johnny Marks wrote that song. And you're listening to it in the radio. Only Johnny Marks gets paid there, not Brenda Lee. Whereas if it's streamed on something like Spotify, then in that particular case, both the writer and the performer would get paid. The United States is one of the few countries that does not pay the performer for a terrestrial radio play. Oh, the weather outside is frightful, but fire is so delightful.
13: For some artists, is it true that Christmas is really the only time of year they release music? I mean, they're they're looking at Christmas time as time to cash in. It's,
15: It's interesting, it sort of tracks with how the music industry is. You get these moments that spur on the play of songs rocking around the Christmas tree. had a resurgence in 1990 originally because it was in the Home Alone movie. It's sometimes less about the artist's intent and more just about these kind of random elements that bring songs back into the public consciousness.
5: It's Christmas time in Hollis, Queens. Mom's cooking chicken
4: in college
13: Grease. Wondering if you think, Professor, that maybe some songs play better in some cities than others. So, say, for example, in New York City, I would imagine Run DMC's Christmas in Hollis probably gets a lot of airplay, and it wouldn't maybe in Los Angeles.
15: Which is a sad state of affairs. But yes, I'm sure there's regional things. But your point is well made, and it is a tactic. You know, record labels, and I used to do this with the record label that I, I ran. We would have all of our artists record Christmas songs whenever they were in the studio because there will be stations that go 24 7 Christmas and they need to fill it up. So, artists that might not be at a level where they would get play on certain stations the rest of the year might get an opportunity during Christmas.
13: That's George Howard, Berklee College of Music. Uh, Professor Howard, thanks a lot. Thank you so much. It was December 24- this is NPR News.
0: Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on War's Morning Edition. A psychologist explains why some people seem to be obsessed with fitness trackers. It's 7.29.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com.
7: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly, Flood watches and warnings are in effect in areas of northern and southern California as well as sections of Arizona. The National Weather Service says heavy rains could also trigger mudslides in areas scarred by wildfires. NPR's Lauren Summer
22: says climate change is playing a role in most of the U.S., when it rains, it rains more. And extreme storms are getting more extreme. They're dropping more rain. Over the last 50 years, that's been particularly true in the Northeast and the Midwest, where those really bad storms are dropping 40 to 50 percent more rain.
7: The Biden administration has released a close ally of Venezuela's president, Nicolas Maduro, in exchange for 10 Americans held in that country's prisons. Six of those released were flown back to the U.S. last night and landed at a military base in San Antonio. One of the six, Savoy Wright, is a businessman from California who was detained in Venezuela in October.
5: I didn't know if I would ever make it out. And it's it's really scary to be... In a place where you're used to having freedoms and you're locked into a cell
7: in addition a defense contractor at the center of a pentagon bribery scandal is being extradited back to the u.s that contractor leonard glenn francis also known as fat leonard fled house arrest in southern california last year this is npr news from washington the justice department and the consumer financial protection bureau are suing a texas-based developer and lender As NPR's Ryan Lucas reports, the company is accused of targeting Hispanic borrowers with predatory loans.
3: The Justice Department and the CFPB say that Colony Ridge Development LLC has violated consumer protection laws as well as civil rights laws. Here's Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark.
9: Our investigation revealed that Colony Ridge operates as a one-stop
19: shop for discriminatory lending.
3: The government alleges that Colony Ridge targets Hispanic borrowers with predatory loans and exploits language barriers in the sales process. The company also allegedly tells borrowers that undeveloped lots are hooked up with utilities when they, in fact, are not. The government says around 25 percent of Colony Ridge loans end in foreclosure after which the company reacquires the properties and sells them to new unsuspecting borrowers. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington.
7: AAA says it expects more people in the U.S. to travel over the holiday period compared to last year. Most will be driving to their destinations between Saturday and New Year's Day. As for gasoline prices, AAA says regular is averaging $3.12 a gallon nationwide. That's up slightly from one year ago. Gas remains most expensive in California, where regular averages about 4.58 a gallon. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington.
0: This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Chenoy. Former President Donald Trump will appear on the Republican primary ballot in Massachusetts next year. That's the ruling from Secretary of State Bill Galvin. He tells the Boston Globe Trump will be on the ballot because the state Republican Party submitted his name and because he has not been convicted of any charges related to the January 6th violence at the U.S. Capitol. Colorado's highest court ruled that violence should prevent Trump from being on the ballot there. Trump's legal team plans to appeal. Today is the last day on the job for the head of the state's trial court. Chief Justice Jeffrey Locke will resign today as he hits the mandatory retirement age of 70. Locke has spent 22 years as a judge and nearly two years as chief justice of the trial court. He'll be replaced by Judge Heidi Brieger. Massachusetts is one step closer to installing high-speed electric vehicle chargers on its highways. The state is accepting applications from companies that want to build the fast chargers. They're expected to be installed on several roads, including Interstate 495 and Route 2. Massachusetts is behind other New England states when it comes to EV charging. Construction is already underway in New Hampshire, Vermont, and Maine. It's 734.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lake Champlain Chocolates, celebrating the season with organic, fair-trade chocolates at local
0: specialty food stores and at LakeChamplainChocolates.com. The Celtics beat the Kings 144-119 to last night in Sacramento. The Seas will visit the L.A. Clippers on Saturday. Sunny today. Highs will be in the mid-30s and we'll have some gusty winds, clear skies, and around 20 tonight. And the solstice is at 1027 tonight, marking the start of astronomical winter. Tomorrow, sunny with highs in the mid-30s again. It's 31 degrees in Boston. You're with WBOR. Support for
20: NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at BetterHelp.com public. And from Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is NPR.
13: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California.
12: And I'm Leila Falden in Washington, D.C. With less than a month to go until the Iowa caucuses, the top contenders in the Republican presidential primary are touring the state.
14: We can't have a country in
0: disarray and a world on fire and go through four more years of chaos. We won't survive.
12: Recent polls show former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley now tied with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis for second place in Iowa, as well as nationally. And she's gaining ground in New Hampshire. But Donald Trump remains the clear front runner in the GOP primary, and he's using a Colorado Supreme Court ruling barring him from that state's primary ballot to raise more money for his campaign. Our co-host, Steven Skeep, spoke with Republican strategist Ryan Williams and asked if any candidate has made a convincing case for why they should win the nomination over Trump.
23: Well, the presidential race on the Republican side sits today where it did eight months ago, which is that Donald Trump has a commanding lead and every other candidate is scrambling to be the second place candidate. No one has really emerged at this point as the true second place candidate. Trump has a huge lead. Nothing has dented it.
24: Could any candidate have made the case that simply Donald Trump is the wrong person to have as president given his indictments and his attempt to overturn his defeat after 2020?
23: It's a difficult argument to make because many in the party look at that as simply Democratic talking points. Trump has seeded this belief among many of the party faithful that all the prosecutions against him are witch hunts and trumped up charges and, and, and political, and they discount the evidence that shows potential wrongdoing no matter what comes out. So it's difficult. If you try to position yourself as someone who's essentially echoing the arguments being made by Trump's opponents on the left, you look yourself like you're in line with the Democrats and then you have a difficult time winning primary opponents. It's just really an impossible task for someone running against Trump. He has such a stranglehold on a sizable majority of the Republican base that decides who the nominee is. And nothing has really shaken their faith in him at this point.
24: Talking about potential alternatives to the former president, and one of them is Nikki Haley, who's received a lot of attention recently and has improved in some polls. But listening to you, I'm wondering if we're hearing more about Nikki Haley just because we're hearing more about Nikki Haley, by which I mean the political press needs a plot line and some movement, so they write about her.
23: I think that's right. This really has not been a contest thus far. There's been no movement, really, in this race, with the exception of Ron DeSantis moving backwards, collapsing in, in the polls, as the obvious second choice. Nikki Haley has had strong debate performances. She excites the ever-dwindling establishment wing of the Republican Party, the old establishment. She's a media fascination, but she's still way behind Trump. And she's not the candidate that excites the base at this point.
24: Talk to me as a political professional. Looking at those polls, do you presume they are true, that Trump would easily defeat or could easily defeat Joe Biden in November?
23: I think it's too early to tell at this point. I mean, I I remember back when I worked for Mitt Romney, and we were beating Obama in in some of the early polls, and then they ran a a very strong campaign against us and obviously won handily. It's too early. I do think that Joe Biden has serious structural issues with his campaign. The biggest of which is his age people think he's too old to be in office and there's really not a lot that the campaign can do to fix that he's not going to get any younger and that's going to hurt his campaign now they can prosecute the case against trump to remind people about the major issues that cropped up during his administration and the way he left office and you know what he might do as president again and try to bring his numbers down but at the end of the day Biden has the age issue. And he's also got an issue with the economy where people don't have confidence in the economy, even though the economy is actually doing fairly well, all things considered.
24: Ronald Reagan was in this kind of trouble in 1983 with what had been a very bad economy that was recovering. But people changed their minds about the economy in 1984 and he won in a landslide.
23: That's true. And that just goes back to what I said. It's too early at this point to really predict the general election. It's not too early at this point, though, to predict how the primaries are going to go. The voting starts in the month here and Trump is winning and he has an argument that is, I can win this election again. I can beat Joe Biden. And if he didn't have that, he might be vulnerable, but he's not. So yeah, the Biden campaign has plenty of time to try to turn this around. But the long-term structural issue is that the president is advanced in age and that seems to be one of the major concerns about his
13: candidacy.
24: Ryan Williams is a Republican strategist, now with the firm Targeted Victory. Thanks so much.
13: Thank you. It's been a busy year for America's top diplomats. Secretary of State Antony Blinken crisscrossed the Middle East as war raged in Gaza. He traveled to Ukraine and tried to rally the world and U.S. lawmakers to continue backing Kyiv in the face of Russia's invasion. Here's NPR's Michelle Kellerman.
19: The images out of Gaza and the devastating civilian death toll have led most countries to demand a ceasefire, and many see this as America's war, too, as the U.S. backs Israel. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says it's striking that no one is making demands of Hamas, which started this latest conflict with its attack on Israel on October 7th.
25: How can it be that there are no demands made of the aggressor and only demands made of the victim?
19: He says the U.S. has been working hard to get more aid into Gaza and is encouraging Israel to move quickly to what he calls a low-intensity phase of the conflict, more targeted operations with fewer civilians killed.
25: We continue to believe that Israel does not have to choose between removing the threat of Hamas and minimizing the toll on civilians in Gaza. It has an obligation to do both, and it has a strategic interest to do
19: both. And he says he's talking to everyone in the region about how to bring lasting peace and security to Israelis and Palestinians. From his Arab counterparts, he says he still hears a common refrain.
25: They are looking for American leadership, and we're working to
19: provide that. Speaking at his year-end news conference, Secretary Blinken also made the case for continued U.S. support to Ukraine.
25: Our support hasn't just helped Ukrainians. 90% of the security assistance that we provided to Ukraine has been spent here In the united states benefiting american businesses workers communities
19: he says russia is weaker and nato is stronger but says president vladimir putin is betting that political divisions in the u.s will block continued aid for ukraine
25: we have proven him wrong before we will prove him wrong again
19: the Biden administration also remains focused on China. Blinken went there in June to restart high-level diplomacy months after an earlier trip was scuttled over the US shootdown of a suspected Chinese spy balloon. He says the US and China are now taking practical steps to manage their competition.
25: We secured China's cooperation on reducing the flow of precursor chemicals that are fueling the synthetic drug crisis. We're restoring military-to-military communications at all levels to reduce the possibility of miscalculation and conflict. And we've agreed to discuss risks and safety around artificial intelligence.
19: It's a long to-do list for Secretary Blinken as the U.S. heads into an election year and the conflict in Gaza draws much of the world's attention. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department.
13: This is NPR News.
0: Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBWAR's Morning Edition, the U.N. is racing to craft a resolution that won't draw a U.S. veto calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Meanwhile, the top political leader of Hamas is holding talks with Egyptian officials about a possible truce with Israel. Mid-30s and windy today under sunny skies. Still windy and clear tonight in the low 20s. Back to the mid-30s tomorrow and sunny again. It's 31 degrees in Boston.
10: WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. plymouthrock.com. And Ocean State Job Lot, committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks
0: and pantries. OceanStateJobLot.com. A federal judge is allowing a Natick couple to move forward with a civil lawsuit against eBay. In 2019, former employees of the e-commerce giant terrorized the couple over negative online articles. That included sending live spiders and a funeral wreath to the couple's home. Six former employees and a contractor have already pleaded guilty for their involvement. The Boston Globe reports the trial is set for March of 2025. Stoneham-based Theory Wellness says it is now the first employee-owned cannabis company in Massachusetts. The company said it's transitioning its business model into what is known as an employee stock ownership plan. Under the law, the move will make Theory Wellness exempt from state and federal taxes. It's 745.
20: Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. From American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation.
13: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez.
12: And I'm Leila Falden. Almost one in three Americans uses a wearable device to track their fitness, according to the National Institutes of Health. And as people shop for last-minute holiday gifts, fitness trackers are a popular choice for nearly all ages but do they actually work? And why do some people seem so obsessed with keeping tabs on everything from their sleep to how many steps they get a day? Pamela Rutledge is a professor of media psychology at the Fielding Graduate University, and she's also a health fitness tracker user, and she joins me now to talk about all this. Hi, Pamela.
26: Hello. How are you?
12: I'm doing well. So I think I want to start with what's going on in people's brains when they use these trackers.
26: So a fitness tracker is just another form of getting information about ourselves that we find intriguing and that we can, you know, maybe use to make decisions. So it's about gathering more information about yourself. Yes, I think that most people who are fitness tracker devotees are using it for self-awareness. They're using it to understand what they're doing and make judgments about how they might change their behavior or what their goals should be. Are there any drawbacks to these fitness trackers? Keeping track of things for behavior change are long standing practices. We just used to have to use a pencil and paper. For the most part, people respond very positively in terms of them being a motivational tool. It's really important, just as these are for self knowledge, to know yourself a little bit because it's very easy for some people to get preoccupied with the quantitative goal rather than the qualitative goal of wellness or fitness. So how many steps is not as important as how you feel. Mm.
12: Do they make a difference when it comes to creating healthier habits in people's lives?
26: Uh, Absolutely. Keeping track of things is a very important form of feedback because people tend to underestimate how much they ate and overestimate how active they've been and all of those kinds of things that where we make judgments that make us feel Mm -hmm. good that are sort of, I hate to sound like a psychologist, but ego consonant, right? In other words, they sort of reinforce our ego. (laughs) Reality, however, is important. And so keeping track allows you to Say, oh gosh, I thought I walked all you know a mile, but it was really only a half a mile. However, you're thinking about it, it changes your level of awareness.
12: Yeah, the accountability of it all. Now you have a fitness tracker. Mm-hmm. How has that sort of shaped things for
22: you?
26: I'm a data freak. So let's be fair <laughs> here. And so I have an Apple Watch, I have an aura ring, I keep track of my workouts on the Peloton bike. Yeah. But in general, I find that it's very helpful to kind of bring me back To my goals, because it's very easy, gosh, especially this time of year. But it helps you to sort of touch back in with yourself. Okay, so I'm keeping track of this. I can, you know, fall off the wagon. But in general, I have the confidence of knowing that I am on this path. Mm -hmm. So I think that they can be very important. And you can motivate yourself by different measures within any kind of tracker. I don't know what you personally measure.
12: Well, I only have my phone actually.
26: I'm thinking, like, maybe I
12: should have these Apple Watches. And then I have a, a tracker for my my food, but on my phone where I write it down. Right. But then, you know, some days I'm like, you know, I'm not going to write it down. And then it didn't happen. And then it's fine. I can eat the whole box of cookies. <laughs> <laughs> Pamela Rutledge is a psychologist who writes for Positively Media, a blog on psychology today. Thanks so much, Pamela, and happy holidays.
26: My pleasure. My pleasure.
12: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin.
0: And I'm a. martinez It's a Thursday on WBUR. Coming up at 8.20 on Morning Edition, we go to Georgia to look at the pros and cons of diversion programs that are supposed to keep people with mental illnesses out of jail and
19: in treatment. It's
0: 7.50. As
19: you support organizations that have real meaning in your life and throughout your community, please Make a tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR. I'm Tiziana Deering. Your gift of cash or stock or a contribution from your donor-advised fund helps become something a lot bigger. Your gift will enrich communities across Boston and throughout our region. Simply put, it will help us all. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
0: Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. U.S. officials say serious negotiations are taking place on a new Gaza ceasefire and release of Israeli hostages. Texas Governor Greg Abbott says he's starting to fly migrants from his state to Chicago as the fight over border policies escalates. And Harvard President Claudine Gay is requesting new corrections to her 1997 Ph.D. dissertation as a Republican-led House panel launches a probe into allegations of plagiarism. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, supporting local charities during the Share the Love event. Learn more at MetroWestSubaru.com.
0: Sunny, windy, and mid-30s today, around 20 tonight under clear skies. Sunny again tomorrow, and we'll be back in the mid-30s. It's 31 degrees in Boston. This is Morning Edition from
12: NPR News. I'm Layla Faldin.
13: And i Martinez. There's a treatment that kind of works like a morning after pill, except this one is for sexually transmitted infections. It's an antibiotic taken in the hours after unprotected sex. Research shows it can significantly lower the chance of developing common STIs. But a new study raises questions about whether it works for most women. Here's NPR's Will Stone. The
4: antibiotic is doxycycline. A major study in the U.S. found more than a 60% reduction in new bacterial STIs, like chlamydia, when it's taken within 24 to 72 hours after sex. The evidence for this approach, known informally as doxypep, is strong enough that the CDC is now finalizing guidelines so more doctors offer it. Except for now, it's only being recommended for gay and bisexual men and transgender women, groups that are disproportionately affected by STIs.
21: There's a lot of enthusiasm for doxycycline PEP, and you're seeing a lot of places rolling it out, but not for cisgender women.
4: That's Dr. Janelle Stewart at Hennepin Healthcare, who led the first clinical trial on doxypep for women. The year-long study followed more than 400 women in Kenya who were at heightened risk of sexually transmitted infections.
21: Unfortunately, it didn't work in our study. We didn't see any reduction of new STIs.
4: Why? The majority of women reported taking the medication, but Stewart says when they took hair samples from some of them.
21: We only found doxycycline in about a third of those samples.
4: Meaning that it may not have proven effective because not enough of them were taking it. Dr. Connie Kellum at the University of Washington says one possible reason women in the study did not take the medication is that they may not have thought they needed it.
2: By and large, there's not diagnostic
4: testing for STIs in Africa. There's much less awareness of STIs. Kellum doesn't think there's any biological reason that doxypep wouldn't be effective in women. There's some preliminary evidence to back that up. Dr. Jeannie Marazzo directs the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. She thinks there does need to be more research on possible anatomical differences, but she says this trial is by no means the final word.
10: I think it's premature to discard this intervention. There is such an urgent need to control these infections in women.
4: As the CDC crafts guidance now on DoxyPep, it reminds Morazzo of when PrEP, used to prevent HIV, was first rolled out.
10: What is so disheartening about these results and the current state of the CDC guidelines is that once again, women are not going to be included with definitive data.
4: Which he says can make it seem like women's needs are not a priority, even though they are also disproportionately affected by STIs. Will Stone, NPR News.
12: This week, NPR is bringing you a series that looks at the challenges China is facing. Today, NPR's China correspondent Emily Fang introduces us to the country's migrant workers, those who propelled China's growth in the past three decades. But now they are approaching retirement age and China must deal with an aging workforce.
27: Liu Zhongxian has spent the better part of 30 years away from home, working on construction sites like this one all over the Chinese capital, Beijing.
18: I followed another villager who had gone out for work in the 1990s. It was like that, one person bringing the next into the cities.
27: He's from a beltway of small villages about three hours' drive from Beijing, still full of dirt roads. And it's the people from villages like these that have built China's cities and its economy. These workers mostly filled low-paid jobs, and they worked hard. Starting in the 1980s, more than 300 million migrant workers flocked to big cities. Lu Zhang, a sociology professor at Temple University in Philadelphia, says these workers were mostly young men in their late teens and early 20s, and later their families came. And so began what is often described as one of the greatest human migrations of all time as hundreds of millions of young men and women from the countryside poured into the factories and construction sites of China's coastal boom cities. But fast-forward three decades, and Chinese government statistics show nearly 30% of migrant workers are 50 years old or above. That's almost 90 million workers. Keep in mind, the official retirement age for men in China is 60 and as young as 50 for women. This mirrors the rest of China. It's aging much faster than babies are being born. And that means fewer new workers and an older population is stretching China's state pension funds and will pressure its healthcare system. But most migrant workers don't have any benefits. And when asked about his retirement plans, Mr. Liu sighs. He has no pension.
6: <laughs>
27: of course I think about retirement, he says, then lights a cigarette and takes a drag before continuing. <laughs>
10: I've got to think of ways
18: to make money first. If you go to the cities, you can make more money. In these days, you cannot survive without money.
27: Mr. Liu is just one of the many millions in this situation in today's China. The country's most recent migrant worker demographic survey shows just under one-fourth of some kind of pension or medical insurance. One of the major reasons for this is that rural migrant workers and their children were long denied social benefits. China has been trying to loosen rigid migration controls for the last decade. But as Lu Zhang explains, employers don't always follow the rules. The problem is, in reality, many employers simply ignore their legal obligations to pay social insurance for employees. So as China ages, its migrant workers become most vulnerable. They helped China achieve its dream of becoming a global economy even if their own dreams have been unfulfilled. Adding to their woes, a real estate slowdown in China. The government has been forcing developers and local governments to pay back debts. That means way fewer projects and way less work for construction workers. Outside Beijing, another construction worker who would only give NPR his last name, Mr. Wong, is doing odd jobs. He's now 68 years old, too old for most construction companies. But a state pension plan gives him only about $20 a month. And so he's still doing odd jobs around the village, living out of a modest brick hut he built himself. He says his China dream, the wild ambitions of making it big, or at least making it into the middle class, is over. He says he will continue working, working until he cannot move anymore. Emily Fang and Pure News.
12: In our continuing series on China, tomorrow we'll take a look at Germany's growing dependence on Chinese imports and why that's got some economists and politicians worried. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm
13: Leila Falden. Martinez.
0: There's good news for Green Line riders this morning. The T says regular service is back on the D branch between Riverside and Kenmore. Buses had replaced trains for nearly two weeks because of construction work. Some gusty winds today. It'll be in the mid-30s under clear skies. Temperatures fall to around 20 tonight and skies stay clear overnight. Then we'll end the week with a sunny Friday in the mid-30s. It's 31 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock.
11: I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org.
0: WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. has freed a close ally of Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro in exchange for the release of 10 Americans. It's Thursday, December 21st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Israeli officials say they've uncovered a major Hamas command center in Gaza City. Also this hour, there's growing criticism of mental health courts that connect people to treatment and keep them out of jail. They're taking attention away from more important solutions that we should be investing in, like community mental health care. And more than two centuries after it was founded, a Massachusetts Association for Craftsmen has welcomed its first craftswoman.
1: Our members are invited by other members. It just never happened. And we said, you know, we we really need to look at this.
0: Sunny in the 30s today. It's 8.01. Now the news.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, Corva Coleman, talks continue on many fronts over the war between Israel and Hamas. A senior Hamas leader is in Cairo for talks with Egyptian officials. At the U.N., diplomats are still working on a resolution calling for a halt to fighting in Gaza. The United Arab Emirates ambassador to the U.N., Lana Nuseba, says diplomats will continue to seek agreement.
10: I believe that capitals that
14: have equities in this file are engaging at the highest level of diplomacy to reach a text that will have impact on the ground. Diplomacy takes time. It means uh, evolving conversations and people are giving it their attention at the highest levels of the capitals that have leverage on this.
2: Meanwhile militants are still firing projectiles into Israel. The Israeli military continues to attack Gaza. The U.S. Supreme Court is preparing to play a critical role in the 2024 presidential election. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports the justices are weighing multiple disputes tied to GOP frontrunner and former president Donald Trump.
11: The high court is considering whether to fast track a pivotal question, whether Trump enjoys absolute immunity from prosecution for trying to overturn the last election because he was serving as president at the time. The Supreme Court already agreed to hear a separate case about the scope of an obstruction law prosecutors deployed against Trump and 300 Capitol rioters. Trump's also vowing to appeal a third dispute after Colorado's Supreme Court disqualified him from the primary ballot because he took an oath of office and then, according to the court, participated in an insurrection. Carrie Johnson, NPR News.
2: The New York City Council has voted to ban most uses of solitary confinement in city jails. The city's mayor opposes the measure, but as NPR's Meg Anderson reports, the council passed it with enough votes to override a veto.
22: The bill bans the use of solitary confinement in most situations, beyond what it called a four-hour de-escalation period. It also requires that every person detained spend at least 14 hours outside of their cell each day. Tamara Carter is the mother of a man who died by suicide while in solitary confinement at the Rikers Island Jail in New York. She says she feels like her son should have been sent to the infirmary, not to solitary confinement.
10: I couldn't save my son. But if I join this fight, maybe I could save somebody else's son.
22: A spokesperson for Mayor Eric Adams told NPR that he opposes the bill because not being able to separate violent detainees from everyone else would make it harder to protect the people in custody and staff. Meg Anderson, NPR News. A federal
2: judge has blocked a California gun law from taking effect on January 1st. It would have stopped people from carrying guns in most public places, even if the person has a permit to carry a concealed weapon. The judge says it violates the
0: Second Amendment. This is NPR. From WBMR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chinoy. Harvard President Claudine Gay is requesting corrections to her dissertation. A review found some work in her Ph.D. dissertation from 1997 was not properly attributed. The findings were released shortly after a congressional committee said it would look into how Harvard handled plagiarism allegations against Gay. Gay has requested corrections to some of her other articles with similar issues. There is now a tree ordinance in place in Boston. It's the city's latest effort to better protect its tree canopy. WBUR's Martha Biebinger says that canopy can clean clean the air and remove carbon emissions. The new rules say healthy trees can't be trimmed or removed without public notice and
11: a hearing. They also require a complete tree survey before construction projects begin. This ordinance only applies to trees on public land, about 40 percent of the city's tree canopy. Kat Eschel, the city's point person on the tree ordinance, says it's
10: a first step.
22: We do have a lot of trees on municipal property because we're the largest landowner in the city uh, with incredible assets like Franklin Park as well as all the public street trees. That was our first priority was making sure that we're leading by example.
11: But some environmental advocates worry the city won't adopt preservation rules for trees on private lands, a step that will be
0: much more challenging and contentious. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. Everett has a new school superintendent. The school committee voted unanimously last night to elect Bill Hart to the job. Hart has been acting superintendent since the committee ousted the former superintendent. Priya Tahiliani was the district's first superintendent of color. She and some community members say the decision to remove her was politically motivated and lacked transparency. Homeless individuals who have died this year on Cape Cod will be remembered during a memorial this evening. Today is National Homeless Persons Memorial Day, held on the longest night of the year. Edie Neesmith is the executive director of the Cape Cod Council of Churches. She says the ceremony in Hyannis will remember 55 people who've died on the Cape.
11: We name each one by first name. We have a candle lit for each person,
21: a bell tolls in the church. And there's a series of readings and musical selections.
0: Neesmith blames the high cost of housing for the rising level of homelessness on the Cape. Thompson Island in Boston Harbor will be renamed after receiving what it's calling a transformational gift. The island's education center is getting $12 million from the James and Kathleen Stone Foundation. The island will be renamed the Kathleen Stone Island. The center says the money will be used to expand partnerships, build new facilities, and work on climate resiliency on the island. It's 8.06. We are funded by
10: you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank, committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together, we have the power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org slash
0: meals the Celtics rounded the Kings last night in Sacramento. The final was 144-119. to The Seas' West Coast road trip resumes on Saturday when they play the Los Angeles Clippers. The New England Revolution just put out their 2024 schedule. The season opens February 24th in Washington. The home opener will be on March 3rd. Lionel Messi and Miami will visit Foxborough on April 27th. Sunny today, it'll be in the mid-30s, clear overnight with temperatures only around 20. Sunny tomorrow and back to the mid-30s, cloudy and in the 40s on Saturday. It's 32 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Croc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. It's
13: Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy e. Martinez in Culver City, California.
19: And I'm Leila Faldil
12: in Washington, D.C. Intense bombardments and Israeli ground operations in the Gaza Strip continue as Hamas launches rockets into Israel. But there are talks underway for some
13: sort of pause. Yeah, negotiations appear to be taking place between Israel and Hamas. All this as the death toll in Gaza will soon reach 20,000 people, according to the health ministry there. And that's not to mention the tens of thousands more people that are wounded in the midst of this dire humanitarian crisis.
12: Joining us to discuss all this from Tel Aviv, is NPR's Jason
3: DeRose. Good morning, Jason. Good morning, Leila. So, what can you tell us about these talks? Well, diplomats from Israel and Qatar, backed by the U.S., have been meeting in Europe to work out some sort of a deal, according to U.S. officials. Also Hamas says that one of its senior leaders, Ismail Haniya, was in Cairo on Wednesday, and Egypt has been playing a role in ceasefire talks, too. Mm-hmm. Hamas is still believed to be holding more than 100 Israeli hostages, and Israel wants them back. And you'll recall during the first ceasefire, Hamas released hostages in exchange for Palestinian prisoners held by Israel during each day of the pause. Now, at the same time, the UN Security Council is trying to pass a resolution calling for a humanitarian pause in fighting. A vote on that continues to be delayed over language acceptable to the US in order to avoid a US veto. I
12: mean, in the backdrop of all this, there is a war and loss of life. I mean, has there been any let up in Gaza as these talks happen?
3: Fighting has been intense. Heavy shelling from Israel by air and land and sea. We mentioned the 20,000 milestone death toll. Mm-hmm. The UN says the most intense shelling is in the Betlehia and Gaza City in the north, in Kan Yunis in the east and Rafah in the south. Israeli military says dozens of aircrafts attacked about 230 targets in Gaza yesterday and the humanitarian crisis there is worsening due to a lack of food and water and power. Now, the Israeli military says it's uncovered something of a command center in one of those underground tunnels we hear so much about. Those are Mm -hmm. tunnels Hamas uses to move people and equipment and supplies around Gaza. Israeli leaders say one of the main objectives of this war is to destroy those tunnels as part of its overall goal to destroy Hamas after the October 7th attacks that killed some 1,200 people. And while all of this is going on, rockets continue to be launched from Gaza and southern Lebanon into Israel. Air raid sirens go off pretty regularly here.
12: Now, I understand you've been reporting on a specific incident, a shooting at a church in Gaza. What can you tell us about that?
3: Well, the Latin Patriarchate of Jerusalem says two women sheltering at Holy Family Parish in northern Gaza were shot and killed by a sniper. Mm-hmm. The church says it was an Israeli sniper, but it didn't go into detail about how it knew this. Bishop William Shomali says there's also been shelling of the church compound.
17: The Israeli army is flattened all the area around the parish. People cannot go outside of the compound because they can be killed.
3: The Pope has even talked about the shooting and the shelling and referred to them as terrorism. The Israeli military says it was performing an operation nearby when the incident took place, but they say their investigation doesn't show they were responsible for the killing of the women. Now, there are only two churches in all of Gaza. Holy Family Parish, where the shooting took place, has about 500 people taking refuge there. There are only about a thousand Palestinian Mm -hmm. Christians who live in Gaza, and there's real concern this war could mean the end of the Christian community there.
12: That's NPR's Jason DeRose in Tel Aviv. Thank you for your reporting, Jason.
3: You're welcome.
13: European leaders have been arguing for three years over how to handle the polarizing issue of migration. Now, the EU has reached an agreement that, according to negotiators, distributes the impact of migration more evenly across the continent. The deal, which has yet to be ratified, responds in part to growing anti-immigration sentiment across the Atlantic. Joining us to discuss what's in the deal is Camila Kos, Associate Director of the Migration Policy Institute. She joins us from Paris. So, Camille, what exactly did EU leaders agree on?
28: Yes, yeah, yesterday was really a, a historic moment uh, because, as you've mentioned, this has been in the making for three years. It's been discussed, you know, all of this reform has been discussed for now over seven years. Um, and migration has been this really this flashpoint for political tension. It's been an existential issue for, for the EU project. And there's so many division, um, and so finally, European Union member state, the Parliament came to an agreement, trying to strike this balance uh, between solidarity and responsibility.
13: And what exactly did they agree on? What what did they actually say? Okay, we can work with this.
28: Yeah, the, the agreement is really trying to, you know, on the one hand, uh, show countries on the front line um, that the other member states are, you know, will show solidarity. And that's going to, you know, be um, manifested by what, what's called relocation. You know, that a member state is taking responsibility for asylum seekers that have arrived at one of these frontline countries or provide financial contribution, operational support. Um, but also that there is a sense that this frontline set up these procedures, this screening process um which is a sort of vetting uh, for newcomer to split this group between you know the one who will be channeled through a fast track procedure um and the one who would go through a more regular one and, and the idea with this fast track procedure is that the one who you know are unlikely to get some status will be you know will um be put more quickly uh, in a return procedure toward their country of origin
13: and and were the things you just mentioned were those the biggest points of disagreement uh, over the years
28: Absolutely. This has been, you know, the tension between different member states and especially this idea of relocation, you know, you know, splitting people between different member states has been really a source of, of, of contention, of dispute. Um, but now, looking forward, I think we're going to see how much um, they still really actually carry uh, because translating such a complex legal framework, what has been adopted yesterday with hundreds and hundreds of pages um, and, and translating it into practice is going to require a lot of capacity, a lot of funding, um, and really monitoring to ensure that mm. all member states are contributing and are, you know, playing the, playing the game.
13: You know, Camille, much like here in the United States, um, there is a growing right-wing faction that wants to restrict migration to Europe. How much sway did they have over the EU's plan?
28: They have increasingly um, more influence. There are European elections next year. Um, and what we're seeing also is that some European capital are increasingly you know, putting pressure on countries of origin, of country of transit, of migrants, to stop migrants. Um, and we've seen it just earlier this month with Prime Minister Meloni, you know, came up with that deal to work with Albania uh, with this idea that from now on, some asylum seeker could be disembarked in Albania instead of coming to, to Italy. Um deal has been put on hold by um, the Albanian Constitutional Court, but we're seeing how some countries um, are increasingly trying to externalize asylum, to send um, asylum seeker to third country, um, and to question some of the you know some of the key principle on which um, the European Union asylum system function.
13: Camille Lacoste is associate director of the Migration Policy Institute in Europe. She joined us from Paris. So Camille, thank you.
28: Thank you.
12: Heavy rain in the northeast this week flooded towns in Vermont, some of which were still recovering from floods over the summer.
13: The east coast of Australia also saw flooding after some cities got more than 30 inches of rain. These kind of events are becoming more common as the climate gets hotter.
12: For more on what coming storms could look like, Lauren Summer is here from NPR's Climate Desk. Good morning, Lauren. Morning. So what is happening with rainfall? How much more dangerous are storms already becoming?
22: The short answer is that in most of the U.S., when it rains, it rains more. And extreme storms are getting more extreme. They're dropping more rain. Over the last 50 years, that's been particularly true in the Northeast and the Midwest, where those really bad storms are dropping 40 to 50 percent more rain.
12: And do we know that climate change is already causing that?
22: Yeah, there are a lot of studies that show intensifying rainfall is mostly due to the planet getting hotter, which is happening as humans burn more fossil fuels. And that's because a hotter atmosphere can hold more moisture, more water vapor. So the storms just have more water to work with, basically.
12: How much worse does rainfall get if the planet continues warming?
22: Yeah, I spoke to Megan Kirkmeyer-Young about this. She's a research scientist at Environment and Climate Change Canada, which is a government agency. She says if we stay on the current path of climate change, rainfall gets even more extreme in many parts of North America. Some of those changes are considerable. Events that used to be very rare
27: in the future under a few degrees of global warming will
9: be fairly common events.
22: You know, in the southern U.S. in particular, storms could drop 20 to 30 percent more rain in the future, according to one study.
12: What does this mean for communities in the U.S. and the flooding they could see?
22: Yeah, you know, it's a big danger because when it rains, all that water needs to drain away. And that's handled by storm drains and other infrastructure. And when communities build that, they design it for a certain kind of storm. And if it's the storms of last century, then all that concrete around you, it's going to get overwhelmed. And that's when streets flood, basement apartments flood, people actually lose their lives. Kirk Meyer-Young says that's why communities need to plan for climate change. Our climate is not stationary. It is changing and it's going to continue to change. And we
27: need to understand that and we need to consider that instead of planning for the climate we used to have.
12: So how much help are cities getting in preparing for a future with more intense rain?
22: Yeah, it's actually a huge problem. It's something we've covered for years on The Climate Desk. A handful of cities are planning for climate change. You know, they're using the storms of the future to build infrastructure today, so it's ready for that. But many cities are not. I've spoken to several that are designing for storms from 60 years ago, and that means they're at risk. The issue is that cities rely on information from the federal government to know what kind of storms to plan for. Those records are decades old for many states. They don't take climate change into account. That is changing. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is updating rainfall records currently, but, you know, it won't be ready until 2026 at the earliest. So in the meantime, communities are largely on their own. Thanks for this, Lauren. Thank you. Lauren Summer is on NPR's Climate
12: Desk. This is NPR News.
0: Good morning. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the Biden administration is trying to make some appliances more energy efficient in order to meet the country's climate goals. It's 820.
23: Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State
18: Job Lot. Committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks and pantries. OceanStateJobLot.com
19: Gathering with family during the holidays is tough to do when you have a loved one in jail. It's become even harder as many jails have switched to video visitation systems. Not
6: only are jails cutting back on in-person visits, they're now building new facilities to exclude that
19: possibility entirely. I'm Elsa Chang. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News.
11: Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR.
0: Clear skies today will have highs in the mid-30s and some gusty winds. Skies stay clear tonight as temperatures fall to around 20. It'll still be pretty windy. Tomorrow, about the same as today, sunny with highs in the mid-30s. It's 32 degrees in Boston.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. At uma.com/npr, from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com/npr. From Storyworth, each week Storyworth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at storyworth.com and from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
12: This is morning edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Falden.
13: Amy I mean, Martinez. More than 2 million people booked in the U.S. jails each year have been diagnosed with a serious mental illness. In recent decades, programs have sprung up across the country to divert people from lockup and connect them to help that could keep them out of jail. They're called mental health courts. Sam Whitehead, with our partner KFF Health News, reports the well intentioned courts can struggle to live up to those goals. It's an early December afternoon, and Donald Brown waits nervously
6: for the start of a mental health court hearing in Gainesville, Georgia. In just a few minutes, the 55-year-old will find out whether he's been kicked out of the diversion program for not meeting work and community service mandates and possibly go back to jail.
15: I'm kind of at a loss for words. I'm scared to death. I mean, I don't like jail, so I got a taste of being out. Going back in, this
6: is, it's really hard. Brown has struggled with depression. Last year, he was threatening to take his life with a gun. His family called 911 for help. The police arrived, and Brown was arrested and charged with felony firearm possession. After months in jail, Brown was offered access to the court. If he pleaded guilty, he'd be connected to services and avoid
15: prison time, if he completes the program. You know, you're in there for 10 and a half months, you got no idea how you gonna get out. It's almost like coercion, you know, here, sign these papers and get out of jail.
6: Brown says the diversion program has helped him stay sober and get on medication for his depression. But it's also been stressful to keep up with the program's requirements. If he gets kicked out, Brown
15: worries he faces years in prison. I've learned a new way of life. You know, instead of just getting high, you know, I'm learning to feel things now and to put forth that effort to try and improve myself to get locked up for it. It's just like a kick in the gut. You can find mental health courts in more than
6: 650 communities. There's no set way to run them, but generally participants receive treatment plans and access to counseling and medication. Judges and mental health clinicians oversee their progress. Lee Johnston is a professor of law at the University of Florida. She says jails and prisons are not the place for people with mental illness.
0: But I'm also not sure that mental
6: health court is the solution. Johnston says the programs can distract policymakers from more meaningful investments.
27: The bigger problem is they're taking attention away from more important solutions that we should be investing in, like community mental health care.
6: Nearly 60% of participants completed the programs as of 2019, according to the National Treatment Court Resource Center. Researchers there say there's little evidence whether the diversion programs improved mental health outcomes or impacted recidivism long term. Kristen Duvall co-directs the organization. She says the courts can't work as well when the social safety net is full of holes it can be hard to find stable housing, counseling, and recovery services in many communities.
9: If all of these other supports that are necessary aren't invested in,
28: then it's kind of a wash.
6: Critics of mental health courts say participating shouldn't come at the cost of a guilty plea. Raji Idiatamangalam, a licensed clinical social worker with New York County Defender Services, says judges often aren't trained to make informed decisions about participants' care.
0: It's inappropriate. We're all licensed to practice in our different professions for a reason, right? I can't show up to do hernia operation just because I read about it or sat next to a hernia surgeon for 10 days. Some
6: mental health court participants praised the programs for helping them get their lives back on track. During a recent hearing in a Metro Atlanta mental health court, many participants thanked Judge Shana Brooks Malone personally, but one woman left the courtroom in tears. She had just been sentenced to seven days in jail for being dishonest about whether she was taking court-required medication. Malone, a lawyer by training, says she doesn't like to incarcerate.
2: But that particular participant um, has had some challenges. I'm rooting for her, um, but all the smaller penalties haven't worked.
6: The final straw, Malone said, would be removing her from the program altogether and sending her to prison. Meanwhile, Donald Brown worries that will ultimately be his fate, too. He avoided jail that early December day. A hearing about whether he can remain in mental health court
13: is expected in the coming weeks. That was Sam Whitehead with our partner KFF Health News.
12: In the San Francisco Bay Area, some people are really devoted to the well-being of newts. And if you don't know what a newt is, they're a type of salamander and reporter Callie Rhodes is charmed by them.
2: I think they're very cute. We primarily in the bay area we see these California newts. The tops of them are kind of darker brown and bumpy and rough, but when you shine a light on them, they have these really distinctive red underbellies red to show predators. They're toxic
13: Rhodes covers the environment for the Oakland side. She wrote about the Chileno Valley Newt Brigade, a group of concerned citizens who act as crossing guards for the newts.
2: They are an amazing range of volunteers across the Bay Area. They are literally going out in the middle of the night with buckets and gloves and high vis vests and they are picking up every single newt that they see on the road, putting them in a bucket with some water and helping them get across the street so a why did the new cross the road
13: i'm sure i don't know maybe ask a newt layla uh tiffany (laughs) Yap definitely does she's a conservation scientist at the center for biological diversity she says during the rainy season newts emerge from their burrows and look for places to breed
26: the rainy season is when they come out and it doesn't matter if there's a road in the way or not if they want to get to the water they're going to cross that road and that's where we see a lot of newt mortality
12: meaning I'm sorry to say, the newts become roadkill. One study found newts dying by the thousands, as much as 40% of the local population killed on
13: one road. Yeah, and that's really bad news because on top of the intrinsic value of newts as living creatures, Yap says little guys are valuable as animals that can tell us about the health of the local environment.
26: Because they're so sensitive, Um, they have this permeable skin that is vulnerable to disease and pollution they kind of give us an idea of the state of the ecosystem. They're also really important predators on the forest floor. They eat a lot of insects.
13: Including mosquitoes.
26: Fortunately,
12: Yap says there are some success stories. One road in the Bay Area has shut down for part of the year
26: since the early 90s to protect the newts. It's a nice reminder that like, we don't have to be scientists. We don't have to be engineers. We we are just members of this community that if we see an observation, Maybe we're curious about it and look into it. There's a lot of impact that we can have.
13: So take this as your sign from the universe to lend a hand to an amphibian in need. This is NPR News.
0: Former Governor Charlie Baker will be back on Beacon Hill tonight. He'll be at the State House for the unveiling of his new official portrait. It'll go in the governor's lobby in the State House, along with the portraits of the most recent governors. That means the painting of 1950s Governor Christian Herder will be bumped out of the lobby and moved out into a hallway. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 8.45 on Morning Edition. WBUR's Simone Rios tells us about a local trades group founded by Paul Revere that's welcoming its first female member. It's 8.29.
7: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Australia's Defence Minister says his country is stepping up its troop commitments in an operation to protect commercial shipping in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. What is happening um, in in the Red Sea is significant. Um, The Red Sea is really the gateway to the Suez Canal. Something like 12% of global trade goes through
16: the Suez Canal. There is a genuine issue there.
7: That's Richard Marles speaking to Sky News. Earlier this week, the Pentagon announced the U.S. will lead a 10-nation security operation to protect commercial ships following recent attacks by Iranian-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen. Some officials in Chicago are criticizing the governor of Texas for sending another group of migrants to the city. More than 100 migrants were flown to Chicago's O'Hare International Airport yesterday with the city's emergency shelters already at capacity. Andre Vasquez is an
5: alderman in Chicago.
8: It is despicable. It is inhumane.
5: Um, it's un-American to see that coming from another uh, state.
7: Over the last year, Texas has moved tens of thousands of migrants who've entered the state from Mexico to Democratic-led cities on buses. The city recently took legal action to try to stop private companies from transporting migrants to Chicago by state chartered bus. This is NPR News from Washington.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chenoy. It's going to be a busy day for holiday travel today at Logan Airport. As of right now, the website FlightAware says there are just nine delayed flights out of Boston. As WBUR's Samantha Kutsia tells us, the number of people choosing to fly is back to pre-pandemic levels. According to AAA, 7.5 million people are expected to fly over the holiday period, breaking a record set in 2019.
8: We think a lot of folks are opting to fly, despite the fact that airfares are up 35 percent on average year over year.
0: That's AAA spokesperson Mark Shieldrop. He says Saturday will be one of the busiest days if you're heading to Logan Airport.
8: Travelers should you know, anticipate large crowds, but we don't necessarily anticipate some of the systemic failures that we saw last year. So many folks um, were pretty uh, put off by that or had negative experiences last year.
0: Last year, thousands of flights were delayed or canceled because of a chain of disruptions. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Smith Kutzia. An incoming city councilor in Lawrence is facing voter fraud charges. The Essex County District Attorney says Councilor-Elect Fidelina Santiago was indicted on charges of illegal voting, conspiracy to vote illegally, and obstruction of voting. Another woman was also indicted. The charges are related to last month's local elections. There's been no comment from Santiago. The state plans to open an overnight shelter tomorrow at a former courthouse in Cambridge. The Boston Herald reports the Cambridge Street location will give up to 70 families a place to sleep until a spot in the larger shelter system opens. The move is part of the Healy administration's effort to use $50 million in funding to open overflow shelter sites. It has until the end of the year to do so. It's 8.33. WBUR supporters include the Christian Science
11: Plaza. Start First Night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the
0: How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash firstnight. The Celtics trounced the Kings last night in Sacramento. The final was 144 to 119. The Seas' West Coast road trip resumes Saturday when they take on the Los Angeles Clippers. Sunny today. Highs will be in the mid 30s and we'll have some gusty winds. Clear skies and around 20 tonight. And the solstice is at 10:27 tonight, marking the start of astronomical winter. Tomorrow, sunny with highs in the mid 30s again. It's 32 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for
20: NPR comes from this station. And from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. It's Morning
12: Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldel in Washington, D.C.
13: And I'm A Martinez in Culver City, California. Ten Americans are returning home to the U.S. after being detained in Venezuela. It was part of a larger deal reached between the White House and Venezuelan President Nicolás Maduro, a deal that also involves the return of the man behind a notorious corruption scandal in the U.S. Navy, a man known by his nickname, Fat Leonard. NPR's White House correspondent Deepa Shivaram joins us now with more on the story. So how did this all come together, given that the U.S. and Venezuela don't exactly have diplomatic ties?
9: Yeah, you're right, A. These deals actually took months and months to put together, and Qatar actually helped broker the deal. And it all came about because the U.S. and other countries have been looking ahead to next year. It's an election year for Venezuela, and the last time there was elections, the U.S. and many other countries didn't recognize the results. And this time around, they're trying to get Maduro to hold free and fair elections. In October, Maduro agreed to something called the Barbados Agreements, or the Barbados Accords, in which he outlined a roadmap of sorts for how the elections could be free. Things like making sure opposition candidates didn't have barriers to run against him. Maduro also agreed to free political prisoners and wrongfully detained Americans. So what's
13: in it for Maduro?
9: Right, so... Pretty big thing, actually. The U.S. agreed to temporarily lift sanctions on Venezuelan oil, which is a huge deal for Venezuela's economy. So now they can sell their oil at a market price. The problem, though, is that the deadline Maduro was supposed to reach in some of the Barbados agreements was November 30th. And, of course, this prisoner exchange happened yesterday. So that deadline was clearly ignored. President Biden was asked last night why it was okay for the U.S. to be negotiating with the Maduro regime at all. And here's what he said after getting off of his helicopter.
24: It's okay because the free American people have held illegally. And we made a deal with Venezuela With the whole free election. So far, they maintain their requirements.
13: All right, so who are the people coming back to the U.S.?
9: So of the 10 Americans who were released, White House officials say six of them had been wrongfully detained. More than 20 Venezuelan political prisoners were also freed as part of the deal. And one additional person was a fugitive. Leonard Francis, a man who's more commonly known as Fat Leonard, was a defense contractor who was arrested in 2013 for this huge bribery scheme. It involved scores of U.S. Navy officials who he was bribing with money and gifts like Cuban cigars and Spanish-suckling pigs. He pled guilty, but when he was on house arrest, he cut off his ankle bracelet and fled to Venezuela. So in addition to the 10 Americans released, he was extradited, too. And there's one more thing Maduro got in this deal. Biden granted clemency to an ally of his, a man named Alex Saab, who was arrested after being accused of money laundering.
13: That's NPR's Deepa Chibron. Thanks a lot.
9: Thank you. From ceiling fans to refrigerators,
12: the Energy Department is updating dozens of efficiency standards that will reduce climate-warming greenhouse gases and save Americans billions of dollars a year. As good as these savings sound, the standards also are a flashpoint in the culture war, as NPR's Jeff Brady reports.
17: A suburban Philadelphia row house is about to get a new heating system. Down in the basement, the old boiler is gone and a new, more efficient one sits waiting to be connected.
16: We are replacing a standard 80% boiler with a 95% condensing boiler.
17: Jimmy Stoikov owns Oval Heating and AC and says the old boiler turned 80% of the energy from natural gas into heat. The new condensing boiler boosts that to 95%, saving the homeowner 15% on their gas bill. <laughs> A condensing boiler or furnace is more efficient because it reduces the amount of heat that goes up the chimney. It recycles the heat and puts it in your house instead. Installation requires more work, a new vent out the side of the house, and a new pipe to drain condensation. That's extra cost, and it's why gas utilities oppose a new standard that only more efficient condensing furnaces can meet. Dave Shriver heads the American Public Gas Association and worries that higher installation cost of those furnaces will hurt business. When you add the costs associated with the replacement of the unit, as well as the cost associated with the venting, it can become um, cost prohibitive for some people which would result in them fuel switching to electric heat. His group is challenging the new standard in court. Groups like gas utilities have an ally in former President Donald Trump. He's also not a fan of efficiency standards. For example, he claims newer dishwashers don't work as well as older, less efficient ones. I had people saying
13: they'd wash their dishes and they'd press the button five times. So in the end, they're probably wasting more water than
17: if they did it once. Trump is joined by many conservatives in criticizing efficiency standards, but peer-reviewed research shows newer appliances actually work better. Shanika Whitehurst of Consumer Reports says her group's extensive testing bears that out.
11: Making appliances more energy efficient does not affect their durability and quality. All of that from a durability, quality perspective rests on, on the hands of the manufacturer and their designers.
17: Efficiency opponents also claim new requirements restrict consumer choices. Here's Pennsylvania Republican Representative Scott Perry speaking to an Energy Department official at a hearing last summer. Thank you very much for limiting our choices. We thought we were free in America until we met you folks. That official pointed out that reviewing standards is required by law, and the Trump administration got behind schedule, says Joanna Maurer with the Appliance Standards Awareness Project.
2: So what you're seeing right now is the Biden administration trying to catch up on updating standards that haven't been revised for a decade or more. And pretty simply, if it's going to save you money, they're proposing an update.
17: That process of approving new efficiency standards could get streamlined in coming months. That's because Maurer's group reached agreement in September with appliance manufacturers. Together, they're recommending tighter standards for refrigerators, freezers, wine chillers, washers, dryers, dishwashers, and cooking stoves. Jeff Brady, NPR News.
12: Hey, you know how you are super into lip serums and things like that?
13: Oh, Layla. You know, I realize that I project a kind of a tough guy image, but I'm uh, actually a very delicate Ken doll <laughs> kind of man. I, you know, some of you have even gone as far to call me very dainty. So, yes, I do definitely need and love all of my lip serums.
12: I like that you think you project a tough guy image. So, I, I was half joking, I and didn't realize you were obsessed. What are you You'll be happy to hear you've got a lot in common with the tweens and the teens. Serums and lip oils this year are on holiday wish lists of 15 year olds, even 10 year olds. And so parents are both confused and amused and I'm kind of assuming TikTok has something to do with this. This story is coming up later today on All Things Considered. You can hear the story by streaming NPR on your phone, smart speaker, or by turning on your radio.
0: This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report explores the world of illicit wildlife trafficking, specifically the illegal trade of shark fins. More than 70 million sharks are killed for their fins every year. Mid-30s and windy today under sunny skies. Still windy and clear tonight in the low 20s. Back to the mid-30s tomorrow and sunny again. It's 32 degrees in Boston. We are
10: funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank, committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together, we have the power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org
0: slash meals Federal regulators say a Waltham medical device maker is out of compliance with federal law. The Food and Drug Administration sent a formal warning to Fresenius Medical Care earlier this month. It said an inspection of the facility identified a handful of serious issues. Those include dangerous chemical leaks coming from the tubing of its kidney dialysis machines. The FDA says Fresenius must take prompt action to address the violations or it risks regulatory action. A major video game developer has plans to open an office in Boston. The Boston Business Journal reports Activision Blizzard is subleasing an entire floor of the hub on Causeway Tower above North Station. The California-based company is behind hit games like Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, and Candy Crush. It's unclear how it'll use the Boston office. The Boston-based Patrick J. McGovern Foundation is giving away nearly $66.5 million to help organizations around the globe harness the power of artificial intelligence. The money is being given to nearly 150 organizations. Those include MIT and the Greater Boston Food Bank. The foundation says the organizations will use the money to ensure matters of public interest are not left behind by the advancement of AI. It's 844.
18: WBUR supporters include Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. And the law firm of Nutter McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com.
0: More than two centuries ago, silversmith Paul Revere helped found an organization to boost skilled craftsmen. That organization, the Massachusetts Charitable Mechanic Association, still exists today. In all the time it's been around, though, the group never welcomed a woman into its ranks until now. W.B. or Simone Rios reports.
5: Standing at the lathe in the woodshop she shares with her dad, Christina Fuller presses a chisel against a spinning stick of teak. She's shaping a spoke to just the right dimensions to be used in the steering wheel of a boat.
26: And this particular spoke is known as the king spoke, which is our family signature. It has these three turnings on it, and that traditionally would signify neutral on the boat.
5: Fuller fine tunes the spoke with a hand rasp after finishing with the lathe. Based in Carver, the Fuller's business is called South Shore Boat Works. They specialize in nautical steering wheels and also offer classes in boat building. Fuller is 26 and she doesn't remember a time when she wasn't in the shop.
26: From when I was a small child, I would come into the shop and just glue two pieces of wood together or just help my dad with something real quick, hammer something, screw something. You know, it's just been my whole life doing this.
5: Fuller descends from a line of pattern makers, a nearly extinct woodworking trade that involves making molds for metal casting. Is it this one? Uh, That one's already been fit.
0: Where's the one?
5: Christina's dad, Bob Fuller, still does pattern making. He says the family wheel making tradition started in the 1960s. And I learned from my father and grandfather and really haven't deviated much from how they built wheels. He says they're the last remaining shop in the U.S. making hand-built boat wheels. That's because digital technology has taken over much of the woodworking industry, with parts designed on computers and produced on automated machines. Fuller says the same is true for sailing. With electronics, you can basically program a computer
29: screen and walk away, and the boat's going to go where it wants to go. But that's not the
5: sensation or the feel of, of actually steering your boat. Fuller couldn't be prouder that his daughter is carrying on the family tradition. But Christina is also pioneering new territory. She's the first woman inducted into an organization founded by the guy who went down in history for shouting, the Redcoats are coming.
1: When you list Paul Revere as our founder, uh, you have to kind of pick up your ears a little bit and say, wow, this is,
5: uh, we are the oldest uh, continuous charitable organization in the country. Chuck Sulkula is president of Mass Charitable Mechanic Association. He says the group was formed by master craftsmen to deal with the problem of runaway apprentices who would jump ship before fulfilling the terms of their contracts. But the mission soon became about helping the families of artisans. And these days, it's about funding nonprofits that promote the trades. Selkala says the association wasn't closed to female members. It just took 230 years to get here. Our members are invited by other members and you yeah, need to have, as he said before,
1: two members who will nominate, recommend somebody. And so it just
5: never happened. And, you know, we really need to look at this. Now, Salkala says it's a big deal to have the first woman join Mass Charitable Mechanics. It's like, wow, this is this, this is new lifeblood. One group the association supports is the North Bennett Street School in Boston's North End. It's the oldest trade school in the country, and it was founded by a woman. But the school's current president, Sarah Turner, says male students still outnumber females by roughly two to one.
26: As you know, we sit right down the street from Paul Revere House, so I'm very sympathetic to like long legacies. Really, you have to put your back into it and start to change them and open them up.
5: Turner says having people like Christina Fuller keeping old trades alive, that will inspire more women to take up similar careers working with their hands. For 90.9 WBUR. I'm Simone
4: Rios.
0: Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on the Civil War that's been ravaging Sudan for the last year, plus the economic reforms promised by Argentina's new right-wing president. It's 850. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales. Investing in the
11: physical and emotional health of young people and proud to support the Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston's Performing Arts programs in Roxbury, Dorchester, and Mattapan. Offering opportunities for movement, dance, drama, and music. Helping young people build resiliency and self-esteem.
12: WBUR has been reporting for months on the family shelter system here in Massachusetts. It's bursting at the seams. During the course of our reporting, it's moved from a low simmer to a boil, and it shows no signs of relenting. I'm Gabriela Emanuel. This kind of in-depth
27: reporting takes investment. Make a year-end contribution at WBUR.org.
28: And thank you.
0: Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Israeli officials say they've found a major Hamas command center in Gaza City. A federal judge is ordering Pennsylvania Republican Representative Scott Perry to turn over hundreds of text messages and emails to investigators related to efforts to keep former President Trump in office in 2020. And a federal judge has blocked a California law that would have made it illegal to carry a gun in most public places, saying it violates the Second Amendment. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
11: WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org.
0: Sunny, windy, and mid-30s today. Around 20 tonight under clear skies. It's 32 degrees in Boston.
16: Cars in the U.S.
11: are getting more fuel efficient. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by the United States Postal Service, offering holiday postage stamps for purchase at more than 40,000 supermarkets, drugstores, office suppliers, and wholesale clubs. And by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Benishore, in
16: for David Brancaccio. As the year draws to a close, the auto industry has something to celebrate. New cars in the U.S. are seeing big improvements in fuel efficiency, and by extension, big reductions in planet warming carbon dioxide emissions.
8: Marketplace's Nova Sappho has more. The average fuel efficiency of all new vehicles sold in the U.S. rose to a record 26 miles per gallon, according to the Environmental Protection Agency. That was in 2022. This year, the EPA says preliminary data indicates even more improvement, up to 27 miles per gallon. That's even as more Americans are opting for trucks and SUVs, and fewer for more fuel-efficient sedans and wagons. The fleet-wide averages are improving, in large part thanks to electrification. In 2022, hybrid vehicles made up a record 10% of all production. Electric vehicles made up 7%, a huge leap. Still, American automakers are lagging behind foreign rivals in fuel efficiency, even as the EPA is proposing tougher emissions mandates to come. That's putting pressure on Detroit's big three. The Wall Street Journal reports that GM just bought out half of its Buick dealerships because they would not make the investments necessary to sell electric vehicles. I'm Novosafo for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers.
16: Dow S&P and Nasdaq futures are all up in the 7 tenths to 1 and 2 tenths percent range. Dow futures up 276 percent. The yield on the 10-year treasury is at 3.846 percent the ceos of warner brothers discovery and paramount global met yesterday and talked about possibly merging this was first reported by axios warner and paramount are both media giants warner brothers owns cnn hbo warner brothers studio paramount also has a hollywood studio and owns mtv cbs nickelodeon Should they merge, so too would their streaming services. Warner owns Max, Paramount has Paramount Plus. The idea there would be to better compete with rivals like Netflix and Disney Plus. Warner Brothers stock is up 5 tenths percent in pre market trading, Paramount's is down 1 and 4 tenths percent.
11: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UiPath. More than 10,000 organizations use the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform to put AI to work. UiPath.com slash Marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. And by This is Uncomfortable, hosted by Rima Krace from Marketplace. Listen as we talk about life and how money messes with it. Listen to the new mini-season now. More than 70 million
16: sharks are killed worldwide for their fins each year. Shark fins are considered a delicacy and a status symbol in some places. The demand for the fins has created a network of illicit trafficking, particularly in Peru and Ecuador. The team behind Al Jazeera's investigative documentary program, Fault Lines, embedded themselves with people trying to stop the shark fin trade. Joining us now is the program's senior correspondent, Josh Rushing. Welcome, Josh. Thanks for having me, excited to be here. So you and your team spent Time in both Peru and Ecuador for this story. Why did you settle on those countries in particular? There's actually kind of a loophole that
29: exists there that allows this trade to continue. Ecuador has banned shark fishing, except for sharks that are caught accidentally, supposedly. But they can't export the fins from there. Peru, which has colder waters and less sharks in their waters, has left open the legal possibility of shipping fins out. But it is controlled by the government and it's highly structured and licensed. But what ends up happening is the sharks are caught in Ecuadorian waters. They're brought in under the guise of being caught accidentally, but they're brought in just by the tons. The fins are dried in these massive drying operations in places like Monta, Ecuador. And then they're shipped down to Peru, where it's easier to get them shipped out, mostly to Asia. Although not always to Asia, we found in our story. Yeah, you managed to find some shark fins in the U.S. How did you do that? So we hired a professional wildlife investigator who does undercover work. We took him around to the different Chinatowns in New York City. He found a chef that said, yes, they could do it. But long story short, we were able to go into this back room of this restaurant and have this soup made out of these fins, which by the way, is terrible. (laughs) But in the process, we were able to sneak out some of those noodles and get them tested and verified that, yeah, they actually are sharks. What is the major driver
16: destination market for shark fins?
29: By far, it's Asia, China being the the number one importer, also popular in other countries like Thailand. Hundreds of years ago, you might have someone of significant status, say, bring me you know, these exotic meats like a heart of a lion or a fin of a shark. But it's grown to be a status symbol that's accessible for kind of the middle class. So at weddings or any big business dinner, you might be looked down upon if you don't have shark fin to serve as an honor
16: one of the fishermen you talked to makes the point that listen we don't catch that many sharks it's the big boats the hundreds of large commercial chinese fishing vessels off the coast of south america that are responsible for the bulk of the shark catch is that true and can peru or anybody else do anything about that
29: i believe that's true we stayed out with those shark fishermen and they caught two hammerhead so they're not really the problem at all you're right it's these massive chinese fleets of hundreds of ships that are taking these sharks out and they're taking them out at the rate of 100 million a year. It's kind of mind-boggling when you think about sharks are creatures that have been on the planet longer than trees. They've survived every single extinction event and yet in the last 50 years their population has dropped by 70% and that's mostly driven by the value of their fins, which are a status symbol.
16: In investigating this story, did you come across any kind of solution any steps that could be taken
29: so i think part of it is just awareness to know what this is doing to the shark population in the ocean to know what that could do to the entire ocean and then to our entire planet it all depends to work together and you have some species that are already gone and won't come back because of this and i think if there was greater awareness people might have more hesitation about it on the second side i think people need to know this tastes like nothing it doesn't make you more virile there's no nutritional value to it This is simply a status symbol that we can chalk up to one of those things in the past that we didn't know better about then, but that we can move on and we can do better in the future.
16: Josh Rushing is senior correspondent on Al Jazeera's investigative program, Fault Lines. The Shark Fin Hunters is out now. Josh, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. In New York, I'm Sabri Banashour with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM American Public Media.
0: Some gusty winds today. It'll be in the mid 30s under clear skies. Temperatures fall to around 20 tonight and skies stay clear overnight. Then we'll end the week with a sunny Friday in the mid 30s. It's 32 degrees in Boston, and the BBC News Hour is next.
3: I'm executive producer of podcasts, Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.